Our thanks to Superfine the Fair for sponsoring this episode of Explain Me. Superfine is the friendly, approachable art fair coming to New York City next month from May 2nd through May 6th. Hello, my name's Patty Johnson. And I'm William Powhead. Welcome to Explain Me, where we discuss the intersection of art, money, and politics. Today we have a great show lined up. Um, Kevin McCoy is here. Kevin? Hi. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Because, um, you know, you're very well known in the, in the New York scene and, and beyond, but we have you here today specifically to talk about some of your work related to um, blockchain and uh, monograph. Yeah, great. So I'm, I'm an artist, uh, and I work uh, artistically, collaboratively with my wife, Jen McCoy. We've made a lot of different work in different veins over the years at intersections of art and technology. I guess for this story, the <laughs> this story starts with uh, in, in 2014 with the launch of the idea called monograph so that happened at the new museum's uh, rhizome seven on seven conference right and you were paired with the technologist and neil dash yeah so seven on seven is that uh, technology conference where they pair artists and uh, technologists and you get uh, 24 hours to do something so sometimes the uh, results have been like disastrous presentations in my experience mm. and other times they've been like really kind of innovative projects that have extended beyond the life of the uh you know the particular presentation which was the case yeah that's right yeah yeah so michael connor of rhizome reached out to me that february because he knew that i had been working on uh, ideas uh with uh, with bitcoin and with blockchain and he said oh why don't you come to seven on seven and we're going to pair you with anil because he's been talking about these things too and you guys can kind of see what happens and you can't cheat and talk ahead of time so uh, <laughs> um so uh, did you cheat no uh we kind of taunted each other i think publicly a little bit like you know like hey i can't say anything to you something but no we didn't we didn't meet. but then when we did meet it was pretty funny it was you know we met uh at the new museum they had a little you know drinks session and and michael introduces us and i go so i've got an idea for how to do uh digital provenance using a blockchain and he goes great sounds good and that was it and that was that was the extent of the discussion of what we were going to do it's like oh okay cool we'll just do that um, and then, oh, wow, that was easy. <laughs> yes, it was like a one-liner. It's like, oh, I know how we can do this thing. And he goes, okay, cool. And Because it's a 24-hour process. You, you're, you're kind of sequestered for 24 hours, and you make a public presentation. Uh, and during that time, we just focused on the kind of bare minimums of what it would take to implement the system. And that's what we presented, and it worked. Well, and I think it's, uh, you know... Part of the reason why we asked you to come and join us today is that our, our friend and sometimes sound consultant, uh, Thomas Seeley, had asked, you know, whether or not um, blockchain is going to commodify digital art. And, you know, he, he was wondering also if it's just a gimmick or it's an actual thing. And uh, I think, you know, Monograph in some way is, you know... An effort potentially to a, a gimmick and an actual art. thing. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> I think there's a complicated uh, response to both of these questions that Thomas asked, and you were the first person I thought of to invite in when he uh, he sent us that that question. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, th- th- that's been a uh, an ongoing question within the Bitcoin and blockchain um, worlds for a, l- a number of years, um, and uh, probably almost five years. That question is is blockchain technologies, uh, computer science innovation, or is it a marketing innovation? You know, what, you know, where, where does that, that sit? Um, And it's certainly the case that the um, marketing potential of the, of of that, of the whole technology is unparalleled. You know, it's been amazing to see how um, media, press, memes, internet culture have just been able to take this idea and just run with it um, to fuel all manner of endeavors scammy to virtuous um so it is a massive marketing thing now that said underneath it there are actual uh you know computer science informational theory um uh uh, innovations that that uh, propel the whole thing so it's you know i think it is it's real um you know but it's also hype so i think there's probably two conversations at least that we're going to have today um One, we want to talk about monograph. We want to talk about the ways in which blockchain potentially can commodify digital art. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, we can discuss because uh, one of the readings you sent us by Megan O'Dwyer, sort of the title is, Does Digital Culture Want to be Free? And so commodifying digital culture potentially could be seen as making it less free. Um, The other conversation we'll probably have is about Bitcoin itself. And I mean, you know, most of the public interest in the blockchain is because of Bitcoin's crazy price fluctuations up yeah. to $19,000 a coin, yeah. uh, now down to about $6,700 or something, um, which is insane because we could have bought a Bitcoin back in 2009 for 100 bucks. Oh, in 2009? Yeah. Oh, penny. A penny. A penny. penny. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. 2009. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which, um, so, so, you know, I think just for our audience, um, maybe you can give us, you know, the kind of elevator pitch of what monograph is yeah sure um so monograph its simplest form is a set of publicly available tools a platform that lets anybody upload media that they want to either register or create licensing mechanisms for uh onto the bitcoin blockchain um and so we have a a number of different license models um that you can choose from this kind of simple interface uh you can just hit upload upload something kind of pick the different routes that you want set a price for it and then we also have mechanisms for kind of storefront kind of stuff you know with a credit card you can you so you can transact in dollars or whatever to, to, to buy stuff. So it's also a kind of ex- marketplace, a kind of exchange um, mechanism. And we do all of the back-end blockchain registrations and all that kind of stuff is sort of transparently happens behind the scenes in our platform. Um, and, and, and that's it. And people, you know, for four years now have been able to upload stuff they want to put it on a blockchain and, and, and do that. And we support a couple of different models, like uh, some we call exclusive, where there's just one instance of that media. We support a limited edition approach where you can have, I think we support up to 100 items, uh, you know, where it can be like a numbered edition. And we handle all of that numbering and kind of distribution and provide like a sort of provenance tree graphically uh, and we support what we call unlimited editions which is more like kind of a stock media kind of thing or something if you're not concerned about uh, any kind of scarcity we can support that and the platform does all those things kind of handles the media does all the blockchain stuff lets the transactions happen all that stuff so just so i was prepared for today i made like a little logo for this show 
and I uploaded it to Monograph just to see how easy it was to handle, like, I mean, it's just like uploading any other thing yeah. anywhere. Like, yep. it's, you it's know, it's really straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you put your bank information in if you want if you that. Want to sell, yeah. yeah. Yep. And then it's super straightforward. So hopefully we'll, we'll be using that or some version of that. I never got any approval from William on the uh, image I made, which includes his face cut out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I finally saw the image this morning and I'm I'm totally okay with it. (laughs) Uh, I actually had to go back and and look up uh, an image that I had uploaded in 2015. Oh yeah. uh, A piece called Things Are Great. Uh, (laughs) I don't think they totally are. But um, but yeah, so I mean, we we you know dis- we made a set of decisions specifically way back in the day that um, we wanted to um, make it you know extremely simple from a user interface standpoint. You know, provide you know the flexibility that we thought people w- might be interested in. Um, but that and, and this really reflects where things were back in 2015. Not to sub- not to have people deal with the. Uh, the, the the blockchain components, the private key components, um, directly that they would be kind of you know hidden, and that was the huge that that was kind of the whole first initial year of Monograph as a as a company was developing those things because the difference between the seven on seven presentation, which we called classic Monograph, versus the platform, on you know our kind of seven on seven one day thing, we uh, had this mechanism to allow you to say who you are, to um, create um, a kind of link to the digital file itself, um, and to create some contract language. And that was this, our, our little, you know, this kind of little block of data that was produced. And then we just handed you the data um, and said, okay, now you've got to take this into your own coin wallet, your own, you know, manage all that stuff yourself, and you can kind of just put it in there and run it yourself. Um, and, you know, that, of course, it was, you know, I think Ma'am Bartlett was the only person that did that <laughs> he came over to the studio that I summer and goes i really want to do this and we sat down and kind of worked through it and he did that for a show in chicago that summer summer of 15 i think he's the only person oh then one guy from a, 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 a this guy from coindesk who was working there you know, from this bitcoin publication he went through the process and i worked talked to him on the phone as he kind of went through it so i know two people actually did that self-managed approach but otherwise it was totally ridiculous that no one was going to do that so we you know, automated and facilitated all that and made this very easy to use streamlined process. The downside of which you're totally removed from that blockchain stuff. It doesn't have much of a reality to it. You don't really perceive the difference if there is a difference, right? And if the, if, if the blockchain does provide value, you're, you're, you're pretty removed from it in our system, you know, and it, and it makes it look like uploading it to anything else, right? So right. does the blockchain matter? Our, our platform doesn't really is not blockchain forward uh you know (laughs) and maybe that undermines the uh argument in you know the argument for blockchain because it's so well hidden in our system well you know i think our our show is called explain me and um you know you sent us this article by Megan O'Dwyer, and she gives a very simple definition of blockchain. She says, blockchain is the underlying database that records and verifies Bitcoin transactions. But in your case, it could be the transaction of uploading uh, an artwork and registering it. Um, and it's a mechanism to secure, authenticate, and commodify digital culture. 
And so I, one question I have is... I, I, don't, I don't understand that use of that word commodify in that sense. I think to give it an economic value. To give it an economic value. Going from zero to... Something. <laughs> yeah, something. And I guess one of the questions I have is that, you know, blockchain itself is just a kind of database that's recording some kind of transaction. Yeah. Um, what What are the legal... Uh, what What's the legal contract that you're encoding into the blockchain through Monograph? Is Monograph. it copyright? Is yeah, it... no, that's that's a really good question. We worked with um, the law firm Prior Cashman. Um, that's you know a big corporate law firm. They also do a lot of stuff with arts um, law and kind of uh, in, in various capacities around verification and ownership claims with uh, within the art world. So they were really excited to tackle this. Um, and so the system that we came up with is this combination of terms of service. And kind of clicking to agree that evokes the Electronic Signatures Act together with the contract language that we put onto the onto the blockchain, and that was our kind of like system for providing kind of legal a legal framework uh, for what we were proposing. No, you know, there's been no legal case around blockchain-based contracts. You know, so it's a completely unproven the whole field. Of, of, of blockchain-based contracts on any platform has never been, to my knowledge, adjudicated. So mm. there's no existing case law. So everybody's kind of like speculating around like, oh, this is the system that could that could work. And that we came up with a version. so interesting. I can't, yeah. like, I, I'm <laughs> almost giddy about the idea that there might be something um, that would like prompt a case, although I assume that fighting is maybe not good, but... I know very little about copyright <laughs> and I guess how it works internationally. And so maybe this sort of goes to what you were talking about in terms of testing the legality of some of these contracts. Like yeah. if the copyright laws in the U.S., say, are different than the copyright laws in India, and you've exchanged an an image, and it has this contract. Is the contract the binding thing that is separate from the different laws? In a word, yes. And and so Monograph made again made the decision that we were going to operate at the level of agreements of contracts and not at the level of copyright. Um, so copyright okay. is assigned by governments. Mm -hmm. you, the U.S. government assigns copyright, and U.S. government law talks about how that works. You have a natural copyright when you create an image, an implied copyright. So you don't have to send something to the copyright office. But copyright is a government monopoly. They have it's in the, in the Constitution. They reserve that right for themselves. So no one else can offer copyright except the U.S. government, to my knowledge. Um, and so right. we're uh, and so our platform is not a copyright platform. Um, and, and, and differences between copyright laws or regimes are handled through international treaties, um, which are negotiated over long periods of time and, you know, have all this you know, kind of stuff going on with it. Um, there are people that try to that, that have made web services, both blockchain based and non-blockchain based, that try to facilitate submitting stuff to the copyright office. I don't think any of them have been a raging success, you know. Some fields are very good at, at, doing, at managing their copyright. The music industry, for the most part, really does a great job of copywriting all of their materials the way they need to be. Uh, commercial photographers are sort of so-so. Artists are terrible. It, terrible at it. At it. Terrible I mean, in part it. because there's generally, and I say this as an artist, no market for the images yeah. of my artwork. The primary market for it is selling the original object, right? And so um, 
uh, as an industry, we haven't really had a market to manage our copyrights. We have like the Artist Rights Society out yeah. there. It's tiny. Um, and that's for the top tier, you know, whatever. Top. Right. And we don't yeah, even have resale tiny. royalties for our objects, the original objects that actually carry market value. The, the idea of trying to create a market for the images of our objects is kind of silly in a way, um, yet digital art is sort of a different animal, right? If it's yeah. something that's sort of, and I'd not, I don't love this term, but if something's born digital and there is no <laughs> analog, you know, there is no original object in which you can store all the value, um, potentially, you know, monograph did seem to be this way where you're, you're trying to, you know, allow that digital object to have the kind of same value in some way that um, a painting or a drawing, a, a you know, physical object may have. Yeah. Or at least start to address that issue for digital artists who've struggled um, <laughs> to create markets for their work. And I mean, I remember, Patty, uh, one of the art fairs, you were selling an edition of, of digital works. But what people were buying was like a very beautiful looking USB drive to some yes. degree. Like, yeah. you know, and part of that speaks mm -hmm. to the, the kind of marketing, the way in which we yep. kind of psychologically prepare somebody to pay physical dollars for an infinitely reproducible um, yeah. digital object. Yeah, that that yeah. particular drive, like the purchase of it facilitated a binding agreement. I mean, technically, you're, you're not allowed to, uh, you know, replicate this thing. But yeah. I mean, none of it is backed by blockchain. So well, right. and, and, but and, and but I think that that's important to recognize that 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 those kinds of strategies and methods have been going on a long time. Right, mm -hmm. um, both in the art world and in the you know shareware world of games or whatever. That's like you, you know you can you know we've got this you know in the nineties. It's like we've got our software site, but you can pay us ten bucks and we'll send you a CD with the files on it. That was my first experience with shareware. It was a subscription service where I you know sent like ten bucks to this company, and then once a month I got a bundle of discs, you know, and I yeah. could play these terrible games on my computer. Yeah, and uh, you know I guess. I was paying, I'm not even sure. I think this stuff was free. Yeah, it was the convenience. Yeah, yeah it was the convenience yeah. for you to get it shipped to me because yep. uh, the modem was a very slow download. Yeah, yeah, point. exactly. And so, you know, what you're describing in the in a kind of non-blockchain world is, you know, existed for a long time. And, and, and take it back to art, you know, kind of some sort of certificate or whatever. That I was thinking Saul LeWitt. Yeah, Saul LeWitt. And, and then even with, you know, well, yeah, I mean, because that's an explicitly instructional based work or, or you know, media based pieces that you know, Walter Benjamin censor, you know, <laughs> infinitely reproducible uh, you know so there's these ways of kind of solving that problem through these kind of metadata right the sort of magic metadata of the certificate that says you own this and and the gallery keeps that in their files and and that's it right and that works that's happened for decades and it works and um, in some ways can probably continue to work and so you could see blockchain is just in that same tradition, but it's a, but it's a different approach to the record keeping. So before, I mean, it, while we're on it, this idea of provenance and authenticity, um, one of the technological breakthroughs that blockchain represents is solving the kind of double spending problem yeah. in the way that, you know, a certificate of authenticity and that provenance would prevent somebody from making a beautiful replica, potentially, or a forgery mm -hmm. <laughs> of a painting and trying to sell it as a, as a you know, or, or even a, a fake, I guess, um, that that blockchain sort of prevents that, which is very easy, right, in digital formats to make a sort of copy of something. Right. Um, I, can you explain that a little bit, though, like um, how blockchain prevents double spending or... Sure. Well, and actually maybe to just sort of buttress that, I, I mean, I'm wondering just 
on a very basic level what it is. Like like what what I've seen like little diagrams on the New York Times that show a bunch of blocks fusing together. Uh, No. uh, uh, (laughs) And that makes a chain and that like what the hell is this thing? Is that really it? Is it a bunch of blocks fused together? Irrevocably, un- like once they're fused, it's like I don't know, cold fusion or something like that. Like what happens? Um, I guess instead of block, the batch. It's a batch. Okay, right? batch. It's a batch. Batch chain. A batch of yeah, batch chain. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Th- Everyone's going to have their own set of analogies, I suppose. But I like to think it of it um, as a messaging system. It's a me- I'm going to send you a message. We've all downloaded this software that allows us to communicate with each other, like a chat, something like a chat, right? I'm going to send you. So I know I know where you are in terms of your address, and I can send you a message, and I can send you a message. Now the messages that we send are number or values their denominations. so it's not just a word that i come up with i have to send you this are we are we are we sending text messages no. or snail mail or, text it, messages, are, or am i like digital already code missing the point? packets this is, of information this is, this is an internet-based uh, messaging system. yeah okay packets <laughs> packets of information encoded bits of data <laughs> it's a messaging system a digital mess an, an internet-based digital messaging system so i'm gonna send uh send you a message and my message says hey i had a bitcoin now you have it right so that that's that's the message and so one of the innovations is that the system as a whole can verify that I have only sent that message one time and I sent it to you and I haven't sent it to him. So that's the basis of the, um, you know, the, the kind of double spend problem or, or, or the, the lack of digital scarcity means I could send the same message to two people simultaneously. I could two time you. How do you know? How do I know I'm not two timing? Right. Uh, and, uh, and so Bitcoin as a network enforces that. This, this, the 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 singular nature of that does it record sale? the sale like of the bitcoin within the blockchain so when you send that information that information it's a transaction it, right. that transaction is recorded in what gets sent to say patty that's right as the sender the sender address and the destination address and the amount now is there is, a pu- is, the, is, is the there message. like a public ledger somewhere i mean because how is this not hackable how is this well so it's a history so so that so that gets recorded in the great book of blockchain okay. right that you know that alice sent bob you know to so this to is like the bitcoin. largest version of QuickBooks ever, right? Absolutely. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. And so it knows that it went from this number to this number. And because of the nature, because the messages, the nature of the message sending and the cryptography that is involved, it's provable that I can only send it once and it went to you and that I can't take the same stuff and send it to somebody else. And is that, is the big, you know, Bitcoin book or the blockchain book, is that, are there like multiple copies of that that are updating so that if someone tries to hack one, it's already been uploaded. So this is the key to the decentralization part of it. Would you, um, it it all starts with the choice to participate in Bitcoin. It's like, I want to be in the Bitcoin community, right? So you've got to download the Bitcoin software. You're choosing to download Bitcoin, right? And you can download it. And there's ways you can make sure that what you've downloaded is the official software. So you can kind of make sure somebody hasn't poisoned your version of it, right? Like so a fake kind of, ATM. It's verifiable, <laughs> right, right? You know, spoofing, whatever. You can, you know, you can make sure that you weren't spoofed in terms of your 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 download. And then you, and you're running this client software, this messaging software. And the first thing that it does is kind of 
like BitTorrent, kind of search the internet, ping out through different ports, looking for peers. Hey, anybody out there? Sending it out on different ports, and, they, and, they, and the client responds back, yeah, I'm here. And it builds a little network map of adjacent people, and then those people start sending you the blockchain history. Here's, here's what you've missed. Since you've been gone, here's what you missed. And they start sending that ledger, that QuickBooks ledger. So it's all coming in. It's all coming mm-hmm. in. It's, like, it's a transfer of yeah, uh, data. Two, yeah, 200 gigs at this point uh-huh. and, uh, of, of, of transactions. And then you're, and then the mechanism, and then you're going, th- you're re-verifying it. You're, 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 it's like, I got nice, so, nice data, bro, but I don't trust you. I'm going to like recalculate and make sure all these, all these message proofs So I'm going to reconcile my books. That's right. Right? So I'm. My my blockchain, and that takes things. days. That takes that takes weeks at this point to download that software and verify it to kind of bootstrap yourself to have that Bitcoin before client. you're even ready. To... Before you're even ready. Now you can send technically you can send messages right away, but you can't. They won't show up as being you know you don't have your own kind of perfect proof of them at that point. So this is why Bitcoin doesn't really work like PayPal or something like that. You can't just use a a Bitcoin to pay for. Like my my conference tickets or something. Well, you like can. That. You can. Sure, sure, you can. Okay. I mean, and so there's different ways of handling that. I, I, I'm a I'm a fan of Bitcoin. The core, the original system, the core system is kind of magical, and it and it works. It's clunky, it's awkward, it's obscure, but there's this kind of purity to it that is amazing. And and the thing is, and this is what's what I think is like one of the things that's totally unique about Bitcoin, the Bitcoin blockchain, is that it is. You know, it's almost 10 years old. It is utterly free of contradiction. It is like there's no people might be stolen from and might be kind of regrets, full of regrets and tears. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but uh, it's perfectly reconciled. There's no possibility for it to be not reconciled. You know, it's like the perfect QuickBooks ledger. It's like everything is lined up. I mean, and that, that's and a fundamental. That sounds really like it's satisfying. Kind of amazing. No, but I mean, that's why accountants are happy people when they can balance the ledger. Yeah. I mean, and that's it has to function like that. Like most of our economy runs on this kind of like massive outstanding debt. And that, you know, like Piketty's, you know, wondered at some point, like we just we, we don't even have a full accounting of the wealth in the world. He's he stated that, like, you know, some of our wealth must be stored on Mars because how else could this? work you know whereas you know it sounds like bitcoin you can actually get back you can zero the books you can absolutely zero the book it's fully accounted and it's kind of amazing and 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 the other thing that i think is kind of you know my kind of bitcoin purism and bitcoin maximalism i mean first that you know it was made by you know kind of an anonymous collective or person or whatever so that's uh, satoshi nakamoto is the is that a pseudonym for a a collective for for somebody i mean a person Mm -hmm. probably it's probably a person um not a group but it's hard to know um and but that that person disappeared uh which i think is a good thing kind of there's no kind of claims for insider in that there's lots of ways you can kind of talk about insiders and Bitcoin, but not at that origin story. It's kind of like, here's this thing, I'm going to kind of get it started, and then I'm going to disappear. So which I think is pretty This pretty is a really amazing. maybe silly question. Is there anyone that uh, takes a transaction fee off of, say, that original Bitcoin chain or something? Or is it just fully open source, like it's just out there running? Oh, it's just out way? there running. Yeah, there's oh, no there's no, okay. there's no licensing fee. There's no... I'm sure there's middlemen at this point, you know, like... Well, yeah, I mean, and those are all just around kind of convenience um, services. But, I mean, if you... Um, and, and so now there's an issue, you, you know, to acquire a Bitcoin. Uh, there's mechanisms for, 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 for providing service to the network that will give you Bitcoin. So you could kind of earn Bitcoin by providing validation services. That's now, 
you'd be hard pressed to participate in that effectively just because the that that role has been um, turned into these hyper efficient hardware units that cost money and that people have dumped millions and millions of dollars into. So you're kind of squeezed now, out. Does that have issue. anything to do with the mining of Bitcoin? That is, that is, <laughs> that's that precisely is... the mining of Bitcoin. That's precisely the mining of Bitcoin. So, so, so to go back to your, your, your things so of this messaging thing and the, and the problem, the solving of this sort of double spending problem. So let's say I've got some Bitcoin, doesn't matter where or how, but just to assume there's some there. Um, the mechanism, the, the network can prove that I can send it to you, Patty, and not to you, Bill. Um, and, and that it's only got sent once. So that transaction gets put, gets broadcast out into the network as a kind of pending transaction, kind of announcing again in a kind of BitTorrent-like way, kind of announcing now, sending a certain kind of message, you're running the client, you re- you're listening for those messages, and you store it in a kind of temporary storage. It's called the mempool, memory pool. And then from that, people that are taking the role of miners are bundling up a certain set of transactions from a given point of time and saying, okay, this is the next candidate block. These are the next transactions we're going to say, I put my stamp of authority on them that says that these all check out. And so that's an open competition to take to do that role. Who's gonna, you know, who can who can verify that? Well, there's a there's a, a kind of a game or a competition for doing that. And the criteria for being the one that wins the prize is basically a number guessing game. It's not people sometimes in the press you read about it like these hyper complex ca- calculations. The calculations for this mining period are super simple, but it's only a guessing game. There's no way to become more efficient at this at this task is that the actual mining you're discussing or the assigning of like the transfer the mining okay the mining. um yeah the way that and i'm totally this will, could be totally wrong but my understanding of like mining in my head i have an image of uh, uh like a, a server farm with like high-end computer graphics gamer card chips which are really good at like solving these problems potentially but i thought they were um I, I didn't think it was just luck. I thought it was like certain math that was very difficult. And okay, so it's not even that. That's it's that's it's what just I thought. running that's, like that's thousands often, of that's often how it's described in the media. But oh. it's not tricky calculations. It's dead simple calculations. But tons of them. But tons of them. So you're like winning the lotto, basically. Yeah. Okay, exactly. so literally like mining. You're just hoping to find that nugget of gold That's right. in a and, mountain so, of calculations. But it's just one computer or something? No, no, no. No, 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 no. There's tons of them. Yeah, yeah, but, but in that moment, it's like it's like the golden ticket, like in that factory, and they really walk in, they're opening all the chocolates, mm-hmm. and they find, the, oh, I got and it. And there's yeah. the one. There's the yeah. one. Yeah. I found the coin. No, no, I found the number that lets me, me be the validator this time around. Okay. I'm king for the day. I found that I, I, I guess the number that lets me be king for well, it's ten minutes. Why does anybody be, care about being a validator? Because they get but, paid. They oh, get paid. okay. Do you get paid <laughs> in the value of the coin you currently? Get, you get there, there, you get two sources of, of 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 payment. First, when I send the message to you, uh, and remember, I'm only sending Bitcoin. I'm not sending words, sure. yo, uh, whatever. I'm only sending. I'm sending a Bitcoin. A tiny fraction of that Bitcoin is a fee that goes to the miner. So in that pool of, of this, this, this moment's transactions, I'm, I'm gathering these messages from the, from the mempool. Okay, here's the set for, for now. There's some amount of fee that's in that, and that's, that's money that I'm, that I'm capturing. But also, there's new Bitcoins that are being created. And so this is how, like, where do Bitcoins come from? They come from 
um, the act of mining. New Bitcoins are being issued kind of from nowhere, from, from the protocol, from the rules of the protocol that you capture in that, um, in that act of mining. So you, those are called mining rewards. So as a miner, you get money for, as mining rewards and you get transaction fees. And that's your source of income. So let's say I'm a miner, which means I own a computer, but I myself am not the computer. Um, sure. <laughs> yes. How much actual like human labor is involved in this? Am I just setting my computer and like say go and then I do something else? You're largely setting your computer up and saying go and doing something else. But this has moved from a pretty like, you know, I think early on there might have been a person with a computer trying to mine a coin. Yes. And now you have server farms. Yes. And right. there's a sort of a, maybe you can answer this, Kevin, or talk about it. Like, do you think there's a legitimate like environment? mental concern, like a negative externality in economic terms to this kind of mining, because people have expressed concern with how much energy it's it's using to mine these coins and how much, you know, computer resources it's taking up to, to you know, find the new coins. And yeah. there's some analogy of like somebody warming their house with the heat that's generated from <laughs> their 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 mining operation, basically. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm I, I I take some of that with a grain of salt, and I I think that those those fears are easy to overblow. Okay, so so to go back, kind of the economics of, of mining, it's it's literally a number guessing game, uh, and there's there's rules. There's this thing called difficulty that's that's um, uh, a kind of parameter of the system of this of this mining thing that prescribes conditions on the number that you guess. So it's like, guess a 64-digit number. Well, that's easy. You can just get a 64-digit number. I, I forget how many digits, some, some large number of digits. But then the rule goes, but the number has to have 10 zeros first. It has got to have 10 leading zeros go and you're like uh you know come you know, here solve the simple little equation that's going to produce uh, a number but it's got it your answer has to have 10 zeros at the beginning and you're like oh, okay well i guess i gotta do a bunch of guesses and then and then that but that 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 challenge gets bigger so guess a guess a you know a 500 digit number uh, that's randomly generated through this little equation but 400 zeros first and you're like oh God, I got to do a lot of guesses to get them with 400 zeros. So that's where the, the the mining race comes from. It's like, well, I better set up another machine that can run in parallel to generate numbers for me. Yeah, and part of this... And that leads to the server farm of like, I'm going to have a thousand machines. Yeah, and part of this also has to do with trying to limit the Bitcoins, right? To create this kind of artificial scarcity or there's Nick Land sort of says, Bitcoin emulates a precious metal. That there's got to be some limit on the technology itself like like the it, there's no limit on the as many people that that can jo will join the um can can play that role of minor there's no, no limit but the, on that. no the the limit on the current level of technology available oh yes like, right. you know like yeah yeah so there's a natural so 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 you're making these you're so so you you're you're solving this simple math equation that produces a random number and then there's rules around what the shape, what the look of that random number needs to have. And so it's just a, a, a and so that started off with CPU, you know, calculations. Mm -hmm. Well, my computer just does it. And then somebody figured out how to use the graphics card uh, and, and, the, and the architecture of a graphics card that's optimized towards certain kinds of calculations to produce, you know, graphic images. Uh, someone figured out how to use a graphics card to do those calculations. And that was an exponential increase in what, a machine could produce in terms of those guesses. And then somebody figured out how to use customized circuits to make a dedicated 
uh, machine, and there was a first generation of that using something called uh, FPGA, Field Programmable Gate Arrays, and there was a whole set of machines that came off that way, and then people, real chip designers said, oh, well, I'm going to make a specific <laughs> dedicated chip that will do this number guessing, and those are called ASIC, Application Specific Integrated Circuits, and so ASIC miners are now where it is. That's the fastest you can get, and so once you get to ASIC, then it becomes about chip manufacturing technologies, basically the spacing on, on chips, Moore's Law. Right, like and how, now how you're, can we you, pack them in? Th that kind of change is now slowing down. Absolutely. Right? I mean, so you've hit Moore's we're, Law. We're, yeah, we're, we're, we're at a limit point of that. And this is, you know, the same thing for phone, for laptop, any, any kind of integrated circuit is, is hitting this. And so Bitcoin mining chips have caught up to and have, have now equaled are now kind of part of that standard industry chip design limitations. And that's measured in nanometers, the spacing between uh, transistors on the chip. Started off at 60 nanometers. It's, you know, gone down, gone down, gone down. 16 nanometers. Now we're at 10 nanometers. That seems to be the physical limit. And so mining chips now, the latest generation of Bitcoin miner, ASIC Bitcoin miners are 10 nanometers. That's it. So no I, more. I just want to say, get faster. as uh, somebody who's fascinated by this stuff, but barely holding on to like <laughs> you know understanding. I feel like I'm on a roller coaster yeah. with like no seatbelt but I love I'm on it. it's Coney Island I mean I, I love this stuff I mean I I can I I know enough about it that I'm like I, I understand where it is but I think we've sufficiently to some degree answered Thomas's question is blockchain a thing Yes, yes, absolutely. It's a <laughs> yes, thing. It is. Um, it's it seems more complicated in some way than you know the the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank or like their meetings and codes around you know our our fiat currencies right now, which are basically rule based ways of of doing all of this, but with you know money the way that we kind of understand it yeah. now, um, which is basically a set of rules that yeah. are determined centrally by a group, whereas what Kevin's just described is this decentralized network. There, there's no governing body, no. let's say, which there's is no governing body. Um, part of the radical philosophical underpinning to this that I think the, the Nick Land three-part essay that you sent us uh, kind of gets at. Um, Which is at, actually, maybe we should uh, specify what the name of those essays is. Yeah, uh, why don't you? Just, uh, and I, I think these are, you know, thank you for sending them, Kevin. Reading them made me feel very weird, in part because of who Nick Land is. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Uh, like far-right nut a, at this point. Yeah, far, yeah, yeah, like, far right yeah. nut. He's gone yeah, fully just... techno-shaman. Like, he's smoked the whatever and, you know, but, you know, in some way, Kevin's mentioned that some of his recent writings have sort of maybe brought him back to at least some level of... Yeah, I, I don't want to get pinned as the Nick, Lo Nick Land apologist. Okay, not an apologist. Nick Land. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's an interesting intellectual journey. And those essays are pretty, are pretty interesting. I mean, and the thing that I liked about those essays is that it captured, he has, um, regardless of the conclusions that he makes in those essays, there's a certain kind of um, political economic overview that I um, like talking about at that level. So I'm right, going to... I just want to, I want to, like, I want to take one level of obscurity. Like, Nick Land is obscure, you know, outside of some circles. I feel like Nick Land is the equivalent of, like, H.P. Lovecraft. Like, H.P. Lovecraft's a little bit less uh, obscure, but he's got this kind of, like, nihilistic uh, philosophy that sort of decenters humanity. And he was a racist. 
you know, like his writing is racist and he shares some commonalities with some of Nick Land's more reactionary points of view. But I'm still fascinated by H.P. Lovecraft and have read a lot of his, you know, creepy horror stories. And some of that is, you know, in in Nick Land's writing and worldview and that kind of we can talk about a little more. But Patty, sorry. Well, just just so that um, our listeners know, we're talking about a series of three articles that were published in the WDW review. So the first one was called uh, China, Cryptocurrency, and the World Order. And that seemed to focus a lot on what was called the Triffin Dilemma. And I will say that um, as someone who has zero economics background, it was a little confusing for me to to, um, keep up with all that. But maybe, Kevin, you can just explain what the Triffin dilemma is. Sure. I found it interesting where those were published. That's Dutch Contemporary Art Center. This, this is you know, an art, art publication. I just discovered it, and I would, I would give a word of warning to our listeners. The uh, app that you can download for WDW for the useless. iPhone is useless. It literally dead ends on articles, and you have to quit out of the app to get back into it. The desktop version works great. But if you try to use the mobile version, no. um, it just I, tells you to download the app. The and then the app version, doesn't work. It, yes, I, did, I did find a mobile link to those things, though, on their website. They had some other version. Google was able to surface some other link that did work on my phone. Thanks. I sent you oh those my links God. originally I would not have been able to find them even on the desktop version without the links that you sent directly. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I could so, get to part one of Nick's essay, but there was no yeah. path to two and three that was discernible. <laughs> but, but I did like, I mean, so, so all of the essays that I forwarded are all published in the context of art journalism, uh, which I thought is, you know, the E-Flux. Yeah, it's fascinating. Sterile, and, then the, and, the, and then the last one, which is from that art. art. The, the Triffin Paradox. Triffin Dilemma. What is yeah. it? So here, let's, like, let's listen to the economics neophytes talk about this, <laughs> you know, very <laughs> subtle topic in post-war economics. In, Kevin, intersection, <laughs> art, politics, and Oh, there money. we go. Okay. So, <laughs> so Triffin Dilemma. The right. Venn diagram. So, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not cheating. I'm not pulling up anything on my on Wikipedia or anything. I talk, so it's off the cuff. Triffin's dilemma is a theory that Triffin was it Robert Triffin? I don't even know his name. Some Belgian American guy uh, that said that there is a contradiction or that, that when a nation's currency uh, it becomes the global reserve currency, there's a contradiction in the approach to how to manage that currency. So um, the U.S. dollar is, you know, one of the, is, you know, the current global reserve currency. That means other nations hold it as a kind of hedge, almost like as, as you know, in that kind of classic risk hedge way to, you know, it, you know as, as a form of kind of political stability, holding that currency. And that role and maintaining that role and the kind of economic maintenance of that role contrasts or contradicts other approaches to the currency that the Fed or some governing body might have to, you know, with interest rates and other kind of things, mechanisms to try to increase the, the internal economy, you know, people's daily lives and trying to support businesses and whatever, that management role and the liquidity and the kind of responding to change, whatever, that approach contrasts or contradicts the management necessary to maintain a global yeah. reserve currency status. There's and, a contradiction in roles. I mean, Nick Land says it, 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 locked, it locks in secular social decline, or maybe he's quoting Triffin, but the 
what, I, what the way I sort of understand that is if the Federal Reserve is printing lots of money, let's say, yeah. and China buys a lot of that money, right? And and they put, you know, they're sitting on it. That money well, is not a, in circulation. But it's a good deal for an, it's a good deal for America because it's we can say, hey, China, let me give you this money that we just printed up out of nowhere, uh, and you give us real stuff. Well, and they don't have the money; they have the debt. They own the debt, basically. Sure. Now it's a, they could, it's, they could sure it's a Federal Reserve note. Back. I mean, it's you know, it's like you know that, that needs to be kind of repaid uh, in a kind of global balance of trade. But the global balance of trade is not uh, household economics. It's no. it's political stability. It's the other kinds of you know it has this other kind of logic to it. So it doesn't need to be repaid in that same way. And, and then the way that you know we mentioned this earlier, or you know, off the podcast, the way that I kind of understand it is maybe the way that you know Thomas Piketty talks about. R is greater than G, where the rate of return on capital on wealth is greater than the return on growth in society. And if that is true, which Piketty was arguing, then, you know, the capitalist is going to sit on their wealth and let it, you know, accumulate return, rather than reinvesting it in society, say, new factories, new jobs, that it's more profitable for them to just let the capital grow. And, and, and I think that I and, 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 sometimes hate learning so much because uh, that just seems like a terrible thing for yeah. Well, it's why, yeah. you know, if Piketty is right, it's why a lot of economists are like, shut the fuck up, Piketty. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> capitalism is good. It's our system. We totally. this is the system that we just say is natural and, and inevitable. And, 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 and if it's bad, or it has this possibility that it could lock uh you know society into like a decline well and, and and not being an economist i'm not familiar with that literature but it sure seems that there would be a kind of connection between the triffin dilemma and what piketty's talking about yeah. you know that it's like those seem to be of related um insight um and and yeah so it's like and then this and i think that's the basis of land his statement saying okay this you know the result of triffin's dilemma is that there's a built-in mismanagement uh, at the heart of a, of a global currency that means, for whatever reason, that it's going to eventually go to stagnation, go to decline. And, and, and there's also the implied transfer, right? Like, we've seen, say, the UK uh, sterling British pound or whatever, you know, be the sort of dominant world currency. It shifts to the US dollar. And then there's this kind of conflict that, um, and, and this is where I think land maybe lands himself into some trouble at times, is that, you know, he sort of proposes there's this coming conflict, I guess, between uh, the US and China, where China, you know, as currency would take over as sort of the dominant global reserve, and they would not be doing all the purchasing, let's say that they are now, or all the production that they're doing right now, because they've invested so much in the growth of their society, that if they reach the point where the return on capital is going to outpace the growth of their society, well, then um, they're not going to be the world's production house anymore so but there is like one potential savior for us from this like world of doom we're describing and that's like bitcoin right (laughs) 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 this is the dream if if that is true it will be a very (laughs) peculiar kind of savior and i think that the uh promised land that emerges will look very different from the promised land that people let's just for like (laughs) well but but yeah no well yeah i'm just wondering if you can explain land's theory a little bit because he is he is sort of positing that Bitcoin yeah. could be a solution, right? Well, he so he's saying I don't know if he says I don't know that he, 
I don't know if solution is the right word, but it could emerge out of a kind of chaos. That there is this, that he's posing that there's an okay. inflection point happening. Yes. That there's, a, that there's this moment of change happening for reasons, whatever reasons. And in that moment of change could very well be that China takes over. And that's a kind of continuation of a kind of global politics, you know, nat- yeah. you know nation state. Centralized country. Another new nation monetary state policy. comes in after the chain of other nation mm-hmm. states have done their arc. And now it's going to be China's turn to do their arc. Could be that, I think is what he's saying. Or it could also be that there's this whole other approach that's different from what we've seen from nation state based solutions. And and this is different than, say, the Keynesian idea of the Bancor global currency that he had tabled. I don't know how many years but ago. That, but that so so yeah. just to be clear like the 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 big difference here for me is that Bancor or any of those solutions IMF World Bank Special those are centrally planned organizations where it's sort of a top-down economic policy dictated by a few people you know it could be many people but we're talking about organizations creating the rules right and you know lands coming from this other point of the decentralized you know, open source, this, you know, something that is completely the opposite. And it's just, it's interesting that when you read Land's essays, he, there's all these binaries that he kind of constantly poses, whether it's the US and China, a kind of Confucius based philosophy versus whatever the Western. You probably say enlightenment. The enlightenment, you know, um, so these projects are sort of pitted against each other. But the underlying kind of conflict here uh, seems to be this kind of centrally planned versus this more anarchist which which gets us into the second like part two of his series which was china cryptocurrency and the world order where he brings up the idea of distributed trust yeah which is what kevin so yeah distributed trust is his word for the um consensus mechanism the of of, of bitcoin the mining the settlement that happens the, the 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 process of saying these transactions uh, constitute the next page of the of the blockchain ledger, um, and so that that process of and, and the mechanisms by which the you know we went through kind of some of the the, the, sure. the technology of that, but that process of deciding um, which of ordering of sorting and of time stamping that process, and then once that's settled, it's settled, um, and and there's again technical reasons why. You can't go back and change them, which we haven't gone into. Hopefully we won't. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, He calls that distributed trust. So it's like we can trust that record, but that trust emerges organically through this distributed um, uh, global network. And he says that's, and I agree with him, that's a real innovation. That hasn't existed before. Uh, in the history of information. And that, yeah, he cites that as being the, the main breakthrough. He's, I mean, if you go, there's, there's, um, if you, if you go on YouTube and search Nick Land and Bitcoin, there's one kind of 30 minute video that is just amazing and hilarious. So, you know, he's self-exiled in Shanghai, whatever. And he's, you know, kind of the, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, part-time philosopher for the alt-right and, you know, the kind of libertarian wing of the blockchain world, whatever. He's invited to some panel, you know, some, <laughs> some, some crypto panel, you know, which are, if, if you go to, you know, crypto panels can, well, they're like art panels, you know, there's a lot of variation in location and quality and audience and like whatever. And so he Skypes into this panel of like these kids, you know, talking about the future of something, you know, whatever. <laughs> and he starts in, he's a professor of philosophy, you know, he's a philosophy, he's a retired philosophy professor, you know, um, 
and he just starts in. <laughs> it is it's hilarious. He starts off with saying, well, I wanted to start talking today about Kant. <laughs> and, well, it's well known in the first critique that Kant locates the, the, the synthetic analytic in the context of space and time. And so, and he goes on to this whole analysis of, you know, of, the, of, of, of duration and temporal succession relates it to Bergson and, you know, and, 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 and its conceptions of space. And then he goes, oh, but then Einstein, Einstein, you know, uh, you know, kind of Einsteinian conception of space. And it's well understood that that seems to provide a critical, you know, uh, you know, that kind of kills the Kantian conception of, oh, he just goes on and on and on. These kids are just like, well, like 25 minutes into his just like hardcore stream of consciousness. This one guy tries to interrupt him, goes, oh, well, we're trying to like, well, he goes, oh, I'll wrap it up. I'll wrap it up. And at the end, he goes, Ed, but but the blockchain now gives us a, a, a an effective universal conception of sequence and duration and time. And it means that Kant is not over and we're still in a Kantian regime. Wow, that is amazing. I I have to say, I mean, quite literally, Bitcoin, blockchain, all of this has so many parallels to conceptual art, to art itself. I mean, like land is basically, he could be talking about art. Well, one of the things, though, that is not directly connected to space and time and Kant. uh, (laughs) I don't want to go there. (laughs) Has to do with, I guess, more on land, like... I think there was something about like Bitcoin having the ability to do for finance what the internet did for communication because and, and it seemed like his rationale is because there's a contract sort of baked into all the um, transactions and that this somehow creates value in a like its value is trust in a trustless system. <laughs> so that kind of made sense to me, but I was like, who is the most populist person I can think of who talks about the economy? I know, I'll Google Paul Krugman. Oh my God. <laughs> and he's like, he's the biggest Bitcoin I hate ever. Bitcoin. And his whole thing was that, like, the concept of value. He's mm-hmm. he seems to have problems with like that mm-hmm. paper money is ultimately backed by governments. Mm-hmm. Um, that gold is actually useful. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, cryptocurrency, there's none of that. But it seems like what um, well, there, there is. land mean, is saying is that the value is trust, and yeah. that that trust or consensus maybe. consensus yeah. is sort of serves the same function as maybe the government would in, in terms of a guarantee. That, I think that's absolutely right. Okay, so I think that's totally right. Yes. I think that's, that is really well said. It's, it, and it's a, because it's a mistake to say that there's not something specifically unique that the Bitcoin blockchain is providing. And what it is providing is absolutely what you, what you say, this, this, this consensus and trust and kind of finality of sequence of time, of, of, of messages over time, that these are the, this is, this is the story. And, and it's you know, set this up. Is the story. And it's, it's self-replicating, self-authenticating, yeah. and it's not necessarily based on the decisions of some group of people that might be branded yeah. uh, an elite or something, you know. And so that, so that, that you, know, the, you know, what we just described is real and it does exist in the blockchain world. Now, you could say that's not much basis for value. I don't really see 
why that is particularly valuable. And you, and you could have that question, but you could pose that question, but you can't say that it's not there. There is a real ba- there is a real uniqueness yeah. in something that's new. The real basis is there, there but then okay. there's two things that happen. One is that, Patty, you, you asked earlier if Bitcoin can, can be used as an actual currency, like buying and selling services on the internet. And sure, it can be, yeah. but its real function and the reason why we're talking about it so much is it became an investment vehicle. That you could buy, you know, Bitcoin. I and you're going to say the real, the real reason we're talking about it is because it does provide a basis for distributed trust, <laughs> 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 which I would agree with. And then say, but then say, oh, it's an investment vehicle. That's now we're like, oh, that's like that's the next ditch that we just spun off into. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, but, but that, that there is a question that if there is distribu- distributed trust and that if governments provide a guarantee, my sort of question is, what is the mechanism for um, enforcing? the contracts that like are implied in Bitcoin, whether well, the, real. the protocol itself enforces it. So um, and the, that can be changed through source code. Sure. I mean, no question. And that protocol has, has evolved and changed over the years. It's not locked in stone. It's changed. There's not, you know, there's the whole like kind of code is law kind of conception, you know, like protocol enforces this, you know, this kind of reality, but it's people have chosen to participate, chosen to Winklevi twins, you know, uh, after they won their Facebook settlement, certainly poured some of their money into a major Bitcoin investment, which then starts to, you know, create uh, more value. Each Bitcoin becomes more valuable as people. Right, because there's a built-in scarcity. Fun- I mean, there's only a certain number of bitcoins um, that will ever be in existence. The mining reward that I mentioned earlier goes down over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so uh, other blockchains have implemented other approaches, but Bitcoin says there's only ever going to be 21 million of them. That's it. And so that deflationary, over time, deflationary model. We're still in an inflationary, you know, phase and will be for some time. But the decreasing inflationary curve and the ultimately deflationary curve of Bitcoin says that its value, its exchange value could go up over time. More and more people are using it to exchange, and there's a finite amount of them. The demand for it to exchange will increase, and it will go up in, ex- in its exchange value. That's, that's how it works. Because right that's now, I saying. understand that if you, do, um, if you had bought a Bitcoin for $100, and hypothetically, it's now worth $6,000, and mm-hmm. you cash out and sell that Bitcoin, you can use the $6,000 to go buy, you know, uh, some new stuff for your house. Whereas it's going to be much more difficult to actually use that $6,000 Bitcoin to go shopping. You'd- well, but you can, fr- I mean, it's, it's des- it goes to eight decimal places. So you're using a fraction of a Bitcoin. To, yeah. Are there, is there you know, like, you know, we have dollars and pennies. <laughs> Do we, yeah, are there any fractional Bitcoin you know, names yet? <laughs> Do they have any new names for real like? One, I mean, it's it's you know. Do they sort have of, animals on the front of the coins? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like kind of, you know. I mean, there's milli. You know, the, the, the only one that really has stuck. It's eight decimal places, and the and so like the basic unit is called a satoshi, but that's you know ten to the negative eight of from a bitcoin so it's still a fraction of a fraction of a cent so it's not so useful maybe eventually if bitcoin goes to some million dollars or something whatever then a satoshi will be worth a dollar and it'll make more sense but you know speaking of the the people i mean it's i i there's so many of the parallels like you know on its face i think art is a good thing it's a cultural good uh maybe described as like a non-rival 
uh, resource or something. I, but basically, art is good, right? And like, there's a sense that Bitcoin is pure and has a, you know, it's this kind of beautiful thing that zeroes out. But then when we get to the people and yeah. how they're using it, we get Bitcoin bros and we get yeah. these, you know, newly Scammers minted millionaires who are yeah. like, we want to buy up Puerto Rico and build our crypto utopia here yeah. in this kind of quasi non US state territory. Like, it gets pretty seasteading, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, this gets into that kind of post nation state ideology mm -hmm. that, you know, maybe some libertarian I don't want to step on anyone's toes but you know like I just I just have this image of like Peter Thiel is like he, he I don't know if he's even involved in Bitcoin or whatever but he's like a seasteader he's a guy yeah. who wants to just be independently wealthy free of nation states and the the, the burdens of actually having to like maybe ha contribute to society or something he just wants to create his own separate society yeah. and I think Bitcoin there is that sort of promise to some degree that like it's a world apart. It's a world outside of, you know, and you can live out your own either a reality or a kind of fantasy at this mm -hmm. point. Um, Which I think also is something that like art to some degree promises. Oh yeah, right? hardcore like, formalism or something where yeah, it's like, it's sure. a, like, like, let's not let, we, we have this issue, Patty, even with Explain Me, like we bracket out. Sometimes it's like, let's just talk about art this week. Because if we try to deal with all the complexity surrounding art, that it's easy not to even talk about, say, the content of the work, but like somehow right, that they're separate. Which we sort of agree is good, right? Yeah, we like agree the, the content's good, but let's, you know, if we can just keep away from the curators this week, yeah, we yeah. might be safe. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. like we could talk about Bitcoin. Or the and mechanisms the, that got the art there in the first place. Just talk place. about the beautiful joy of making. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So which fun. is it's no, so like, like shop talk, like, you <laughs> yeah. know, talking about uh, Bitcoin mining is sort of amazing, but then there's it, it, all of these things are, you know, interconnected. And now, a public service announcement. The Long Island City Coalition needs our help to preserve public land along the community's waterfront. Mayor de Blasio, Deputy Mayor Alicia Glenn, and the Economic Development Corporation want to rezone acres of space along Vernon Boulevard and 44th Drive and turn it over to a private developer to build more unnecessary luxury housing. Please visit change.org and search for Save the Waterfront. This land is our land public land for public use. Please find the petition and sign it to support a wetlands park, a community recreation center, and space for public education, job training, and the arts for all residents in Long Island City. Hey, Explain Me listeners, are you looking for some new art for your apartment? Well, you should check out Superfy, a contemporary art fair returning to the Meatpacking District next month, May 2nd through May 6th. With thousands of works by over 300 international artists across 78 booths, you're bound to discover something to take home that will fit your taste and your budget. Most of the work is priced under $5,000, which is why Superfine is a great alternative to the other big box art fairs this spring. Don't miss out and get your tickets now at superfineNYC.eventbrite.com. Well, and let me just say, I mean, because, you know, I, I, you know, I fell in love with Bitcoin in like 2012 and 2013. It was, you know, kind of just got, you know, fell down this slope of like, what is this? It's also true with art, you know, it's, but more, I mean, with Bitcoin, it's like this little, especially at that time, it's this little micro universe that just connected to everything and it rebuilt the world. It was like, had the whole world in miniature there. 
and you could kind of you know understand finance or understand economics understand these kind of technical issues because it was all just sort of defined and it was an opportunity to kind of like rehearse through all these different fields of knowledge that you didn't necessarily know about and learn about them in this controlled micro environment and right. it was you know, very attractive it sort of reminds me a little bit of it was like Sim City, and then like Second Life. It's Second Life, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then Bitcoin takes that a little bit yeah. further, right? Yeah, because for sure. It, I mean, you know, if if you haven't seen it yet, well, Crypto Kitties, you know, Crypto which uses blockchain technology, but not to establish a currency or an investment vehicle or a decentralized, you know financial system it, basically it's like buying and trading uh little cats you own digital animals wait so you're saying you could take a piece of media and put it on a make a blockchain based registration for it on it and <laughs> turn it into a kind of collectible no, no way. way wait, wait oh minute. my god that's insane <laughs> I, but you know when you got interested in this stuff kevin i remember it distinctly we were also talking about like um, trying to socialize a piece of artwork, yeah. like, you know, collectively trying to buy a Richard Prince yeah. and imagining how many people it would take to get the capital to buy a Richard Prince and then how to kind of fractionalize that ownership. Um, you keep it for a week and then it'll move on to its next destination. Yeah. And, you know, it was just such a ludicrous project. I loved it because it was so, it like used human bodies and wealth to kind of visualize what like one rich person would have and how easy it would be for them. Yeah. Whereas the flip side of that now it's um, we're still dealing with like micropayments and fractionalizing experience, but it's, yeah. it's, it's the kind of subscription based models. It's on some, on, on one hand, like monograph is still in a very like old analog art world thinking like I have a digital object. I want to sell it to one person to some degree. Yep. Whereas you know, like Drip and Patreon are tapping into this other idea that like, if um, you produce uh, interesting cultural products, uh, people will pay a subscription so that they can get access to your uh, material. So instead of like selling that material to someone else, you build a wall around it and then you charge people entry fee to come and see that, but you retain the kind of um, content. You don't just kind of like sell it to someone else and yep. go away. And maybe it's experience-based. Well, um, well just... that's a subscription model versus, I mean, Drip, I, I guess I always thought that was sort of like, maybe this is sort of a fancy way of saying it, but like fractionalizing labor in some way, right? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, you have this product that you give away for free. Well, how do I monetize it? Well, I'll like do 500 other tiny things and those things will amount I, and I keep that behind the paywall. The complexity of it is is for sure like something we need to get at because I think part of this and it came up in some of the other readings is that, you know, maybe we want cultural products to be free, but artists shouldn't work for free. And we want, you know, the, the sort of upside to this is finding ways in which artists could be paid for their labor, not from, you know, just wealthy collectors, but from the vast pool of people that have a little bit of money. But I just, you know, like thinking about the way that we used to buy CDs, right? Or used to collect records or even the resurgence of vinyl, like owning the music is a very different, you know, um, scenario than Spotify, mm -hmm. where you're just renting access to the music. You know, you don't need to own it. You know, the, like the connoisseurship of collecting record album covers or, yeah. you know, all of that kind well, of and, gets and, tossed. And, and, and honestly, you know, because you said that Monograph is this kind of old model 
classic model of like this of this around this kind of object uh, and that's absolutely true and i think that that is a reflection of me as an artist making objects and so uh, monograph has a model of around objectness and a kind of like creator centric like bottom up like i've made this thing and i here's this thing here's this here's this authentication around it mm-hmm. um but to me i think that that is you know you talked about you know, collecting vinyl in the age of Spotify, th- I think that that's the, the model that Monograph is proposing. It's like, I've got, I've, I've, here's this GIF that I've made. I've made it in a limited edition of 10. I'm selling it for a hundred bucks and I'm selling it to collectors who want to support me. It's about a form of support and membership and fandom, you know, more so than the kind of, a more kind of calculating idea of primary and secondary market or things like that. It's just a form of support. I think that that's the that's the in its kind of current iteration that's the best way that monograph can function you know and I and I think that that's a good way I think that's a good so, thing So I mean I think uh, uh when I watched your uh presentation with it uh Anil Dash it yesterday uh when I was preparing for this the, pre- like the presentation from 2014 yeah, yeah the 2014 presentation at 717 Home, you had like a little diagram and there were two circles, and in one it said there were a group of people that were like the literate, uh, they were literate about blockchain. And then there was another circle, and inside that circle it said, not entirely contemptuous of artistic endeavor. So that was the second group of people. And these like circles would like merge together, and there was like a tiny sliver in the section, in, in, the, in the middle that you guys had described as the people in that room, the people who were both literate about blockchains and not entirely contemptuous of all artistic endeavor. And those were the people who would use monograph, the monetization of graphics. So now that was 2014, 2017. Like, has that Venn diagram expanded the the section in the center? Like, how big is that that group of people? Yeah, and that's a great question. And it's, it's certainly been one of the most interesting parts of the project to see that play out and you know i think that it's i don't know how much it's increased you know i don't think those circles have have, have overlapped more and i think that particularly we're the first ones to to kind of show how to do it and a scribe came out and they had a you know a kind of similar kind of model and then we you know came out with our more full-fledged system and, and certainly the blockchain concept in 2014, no one knew what the hell you're talking about, and some more people do now, maybe a little bit. But it's not. Uh, it's important to say that it's not a you know raging success. It's not that like everyone's been like, oh my god, this is the magic solution, and everyone's kind of rushing towards it. So from a technology standpoint, is it solving a real problem? You know, maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, Patreon in that same time frame has gone huge gone crazy right patreon is like now this you know they were kind of pretty in 2014 are they for profit yeah they're a startup they're a san francisco startup thing they're i i guess aren't they the competition to drip well, Drip, I mean, Kickstarter made a kind of Me Too thing with Drip to, f- to follow along. I mean, they represented two pretty different models, the crowdfund versus the patron- patronage model. Um, you know, Kickstarter is wildly successful. Patreon has become much, you know, they're not the size of Kickstarter, but they're really successful. And, um, and Drip is now kind of, Kickstarter's added that component in. And so um, I, I don't know when Patreon started. Maybe it was before 2014, maybe it was 2012 or whatever. But their growth curve compared to, say, all of the blockchain-based art registration, you know, things, it's like the curves are like 
like this, right? And so I think that it's important to to see that the blockchain is, and and I and I keep that in fact in mind. I keep that fact in mind to um, push back against some of the kind of like fear mongering of like blockchain's gonna you know eat everything. Blockchain's gonna lock us out of culture. There's a kind of pessimistic absolutism around you know blockchain a kind of you know anti-utopia thinking what what do you think is like holding up that growth though because i think like you know when you gave that presentation on seven at seven on seven you were the the last presentation of the day which they usually do on purpose because they they save the best for last you know they like to make a, a a bang and you know even just, I wasn't there in 2014, but I watched it. There was like a huge sort of excitement yeah. about that project. And like, I guess I'm just wondering. <laughs> what happened? Not, no, no, but, not, not, I don't want to set it up like that. Like, although I well, guess I did. I'm such a bad CEO. No, even that's me. No, but it's a, <laughs> no, no, no. What I, what I mean though, it's sliver. like you have a project that that's sliver. like amazing. Uh, yeah. But it's not been adopted en masse. Like, yeah. what is needed? Do we just need, like, that visionary dealer? Do we just need the, like, the well, Colin Deland? The, right, right, right. You know, no, that's Castelli. an interesting question. I mean, I think that, and, and what all, all of the, the, the continued and ongoing interest in the platform came from the blockchain community. Not from the creative, not yeah. more percentage-wise, it was blockchain people that were interested in it more than creative people, indie practitioners or whatever. And the indie practitioners, their strategy was, you know, I mean, to kind of put it in a blunt way, I'm desperate for engagement. I'm desperate for interest. I'm going to kind of use all these platforms and see what sticks, see what happens, see where I can kind of get ahead. Sure. Which is like makes perfect sense, right? So, you know, there's a lot of different options, you know, blockchain-based or no, that around, you know, kind of publishing your work and, you know, you could do a Bandcamp thing. You could do, you're putting yourself on Instagram. You're doing, you know, you're putting stuff for sale on, you know, I don't know, whatever, you know, there's all these different strategies. And Monograph in that kind of um, universe of possibilities for a young striver is kind of one of those things. Okay, so the one thing that's really important is that if we were talking about a Venn diagram of like, artists and art, and then like general public, the tiniest sliver overlap of that Venn diagram where they intersect where collectors would reside is still the tiniest sliver ever of like, very wealthy, it doesn't even register. It's like, it's like where they might touch at the, you know, atomic level or something, you know, Um, that pool (laughs) of people hasn't changed necessarily. And they, they're, they have more money. And they're still tied to most of like maybe their old ideas or generational ideas yeah. about collecting and buying. But it's um, an activity that like w- if we're thinking about an ownership model, the prices for art are very expensive. You know, it's like yeah. now buying a Bitcoin is getting close to buying like a, an emerging artist painting. You know, it's yeah. like seven grand. Yeah. You could get a painting like that at Nada. And in trying to generate like that group doesn't scale. You know, like that collector class. Yeah, that collector class doesn't scale. All you can do is bring the price point down to try to open up that, you know, to to move the two (laughs) circles, you know, closer together. So you have a bigger market for the work. And, you know, I think that's still very difficult for art. You know, Mm -hmm. if art's challenging, if art is not um, consumable, if it doesn't entertain people and provide kind of gratifying experiences like watching your crypto kitty grow up. Like those are sort of easy things. 
the the other thing like you know if we're not talking about ownership models like patreon i still think falls into an ownership model or a patron model that's what it sort of like bills itself as but you don't get a thing you're just buying into the idea like you feel a sense of ownership that in support of this thing um and and let's i mean i know patronage is the idea that like you support uh an institution or something that you and you give it money so that it continue to do it but most patrons are also collectors their patronage is often giving the art that they bought to an institution, you know, later or buying from an artist early. So and continuously over time so that their practice can continue to grow. But I still think patronage is very much rooted in collecting and ownership and that these new models are just trying to like fractionalize that. Yeah. I mean, I think in these days that the idea of sort of giving something to an institution seems at least if um, L.A. Mocha is any like indication seems like just very tied to the idea of, well, what do I get back for it? Mm -hmm. Like, well, Patreon and a lot of these things aren't very different as artists. Then you have to start producing like secondary work. You have to produce rewards. You have to produce experiences that reward the patron if they're not getting your primary activity. Right. Well, that's what I think that's where I was going with like fractionalized labor. Mm -hmm. Right. Like instead of just giving this thing, like suddenly like you're divided Mm-hmm. Um, because you have to give all these incentives. Well, you you and might rewards. have to do more work, you know, um, which. <laughs> which is not the fucking point. You're no. already doing a yeah. lot of work. Yeah, like, no, that work doesn't count. No, true patronage is you just give the money to yeah, support no. the person, or you buy the thing that they're doing. And, Show me. Yeah. <laughs> Show me. What you um, but, you know, I mean, this idea of ownership, though, still, it's part of the conflict with all of this is that, like, you know, O'Dwyer notes in her article that, um, you know, a lot of the early practitioners of new media or digital art that we were discussing were totally irreverent towards ownership. Yeah. You know, like ownership was the thing that, you know, we wanted to get rid of. And I mean, yeah. this is coming out of the conceptual art project of dematerializing the object and turning it into experiences that are supposed to sort of be free, you know. Um, but that also has its own paradox. Like, how do you support the artist or how do you support that practice if there's nothing to sell. And I, a, a lot of this reminded me of Seth Price's essay, Dispersion, where he sort of like is saying, isn't mm-hmm. a lot of that just, aren't we still sort of discussing publicness, like public art? Because so much like the, so right. much of early internet work was, it was public art. It just happened to be in a virtual space, you yeah. know? Like I was thinking about like a Raphael Rosendahl website. He's not, it's not something that's infinitely reproducible. It's infinitely visit, visitable. You can go to it. It's got an IP address. It's got a fixed location. But he is able to buy and sell these websites uh, through contracts. Well, well more, more specifically than that, I mean, yeah, the contracts are part of it, but he, his, his scarcity mechanism, non-blockchain, is uh, ICANN, is the Internet Domain Name Registration System. And so you, are, you become the registrar of the Internet domain when you own it. Exactly. And you own that. And you that's, own that. And that's, and that's, a, that's and, great. And that's a digital scarcity. I mean, that's enforced by international but agreements, I can still go centralized and, international agreements. I can still go visit all his websites. Absolutely. They're Absolutely. all still public art, basically. And so there is, that's what I think is really interesting to some degree. And yeah. that, you know, some of the stuff that we've talked about probably in previous conversations is like, if you really want to make it scarce, you know, it, it, there is putting up that paywall, you know. And I mean, we're, we're experiencing this mostly in journalism right now, where it's like to support good journalism, subscription works better than it can work. It becomes the way to enforce, you know, getting someone to pay for it. It's putting up that paywall, even though we desperately sort of realize how important 
access to good journalism is. Yeah. <laughs> so then we hit another one of these kind of paradoxes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and the paradox of, of I need to distribute my work, uh, you know, uh, but I also need to get paid for it. You know, this kind of maybe that's we need to come up with a new Triffin's dilemma. It's like Triffin's dilemma, right? It's like I need to kind of have my content be free so everyone can see it. And I need people to pay me for it so that I can actually right. make a living. That's some sort of new digital dilemma. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not new. Everyone's experienced it for 15 years already. So uh, I, if I could ask, like, I don't know whether this information is private or not, but like a, a question about your users. Like, do you have a sense of like, say, how many are US based versus mm. like Chinese? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. There, It's a pretty international group. Honestly, you know, our, our site is all English language based, right? And so, um, and we, you know, in terms of selling stuff, if you're going to try to sell things through the platform, we use Stripe as the payment provider and there's limitations on, you manage it yourself, it's your own information, we're just kind of a conduit for that via Stripe. Uh, and there's limitations in geography in terms of countries that they operate in, so there's like some constraint there. But uh, it's, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, it's probably a majority US-based, but not a massive majority, maybe 60-40. Huh. I'd say. I mean, the reason I was wondering it, it was that, uh, so Josh Bear sent out his mailer yesterday, um, and he talked about Art Basel Hong Kong, mm-hmm. and he had a quote from a dealer who said, this fair is the future, but it's not yet what it pretends to be, and there's no luck to be found in just doing it. Real sales up to $1 million, but most under 250 that would be total booth sales, remember me? I think what he's talking about is it, not total booth sales, but like uh, sales for individual artworks. Because oh, in okay. this world, $250,000 is... is pretty low. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I was, surprised. That's why I was kind of so, um <laughs> But he's saying, though, but like this sales for artworks under 250000 are very possible. And so there's like an absolute massive audience of buyers who prefer relationships over prestige brands. And when I read that, I thought the collectors there are better than the collectors in the US Mm -hmm. and Europe who seem like totally obsessed with brands. It just made me think like, would they like, would they be more interested in this model? Like, would there be more artists that would engage with that? That's kind of why I was wondering, like, are there yeah, more? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, I think that the, you know, we we never, um, you know, and this is my reflection of my, you know, interests, my beliefs, my philosophy, whatever. It was like, it's going to be an artist tool, right? And in some ways, it always thumbed its nose at the galleries. You know, there was no mechanism to kind of like consign or be a gallery that then represents this other thing you know so we're talking we we talked about it and whatever but never really kind of built it and so it's kind of you know disintermediated in a model you know way it's like here's my thing and here's my collectors and you know come you know come to me there's not a lot of room for the gallerist in in kind of the way that's written scribe other other kind of people kind of did that more and um you know and and so i never wanted it i never thought that monograph was never my intention to have it kind of 
you know, target the industry, become a new set of tools that sure. auction houses. We met because of, because Anil uh, at the time, right after Seven on Seven, Anil at that time had a media cons- consultancy business, and he was consulting with Christie's. And he we're, he's like, we're meeting, we're doing an annual meeting with them next week. You should come, and we'll talk about Monograph to Christie's. And so, like within five days after the launch of Monograph, we were sitting there with the board and the president and all the kind of regional things of Christie's and say, no, we just came up with this way to use blockchain to do to do provenance. So <laughs> they were this, just like, this, whoa, this totally reminds me of something was, that was, was mentioned. It was amazing. In one How of the articles. Summer over? of 2014. Well, it's funny. They were just coming off of their first billion dollar auction cycle because i'll never forget what's his name the guy that ran the ran tobias uh, meyer no not no him. okay he this was other, at Sotheby's. um what's his name british guy i don't know whatever it's it's kind of a blur but he was like we just we just did one billion dollars he kind of strode into the room he kind of said that. It, was so, it was so awesome look at i mean one thing that one thing that blockchain allows for and creates is, they're like that in real life too yeah, huh yeah in but this, in this, yeah, this is the profit layer Right. This is like the profit layer that, you know, blockchain can introduce into art. And like, I can imagine those, you know, that group that had Nick Land on Skype or whatever coming in to talk. They just are like, get to the profit layer, man. Yeah. Like, how does this create a new profit layer around this activity that we can access? And I'm sure Christie's was like, what is this going to add to our to our profit margin, Um, which seems to run distinctly counter to so many of like the artists that I know. I mean, they're interested in making uh, money off the sales of their work. But at the same time, like when I was teaching students, um, I asked them to like look at monograph and creative commons licensing. Mm -hmm. And none of the students had ever studied copyright. They had never they didn't even know what their sort of copyright was, you know, like established Mm -hmm. by the US government. Um, All of this was sort of like new to them. Right. And I still think there's probably an enormous amount of just ignorance on the part of artists about their yeah. ownership rights or what they could do with these tools. And part of that yeah. is baked into the kind of like idea that, you know, culture and art want to sort of be free and that, you know, that runs counter to this kind of like push to monetize. Well, I mean, I think that in, in this was, you know, if you're trying to build a business around this sort of like artist first empowering artist thing, a lot of artists aren't interested in the business side of their work. Right. It's like they that's what they're that's what they want the gallerist to do, you know, is to create opportunities, handle all this stuff, they want to deal with it. Um and so the kind of great promise of you know, <laughs> Bitcoin or like blockchain, you can do it all yourself and everyone's like, I'm not that interested in that, you know. And so for sure that 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 happened. So I don't know if it's so much of like culture wants to be free, but people don't want to deal with with you know, kind of shaking the tin cup to get paid for their work. And we saw mm-hmm. that with the monograph right off the bat. You know, our interface asks you to put a, our initial interface asks you to put a price on something if you click, you know, kind of buy or you know, kind of click sell or something. And it's like people like don't do not know how to how to how to um, what to price their work at. And so so much of the time, people just clicked our defaults, whatever our defaults were. It was like twenty five bucks. Twenty five <laughs> bucks is a default, and we and we played with yeah. we, we played with. <laughs> Yeah, we played with the art license, you know, with what license came up first. And we, for a while we were, you know, there's this whole like, kind of rigmarole around that, like whatever. But whatever we put as the defaults, 
most of our users click through the defaults and just accepted the defaults. And, and Patty, I, I was I went to a panel the other night called "There Goes the Neighborhood," curated by moderated by Sarah Douglas, and it was uh, all female art dealers. Um, I'm not going to remember everyone's name, but it was like Wendy from PPOW. Was this at NYU? Yeah, it was at NYU. Oh, that, yeah, with J- Jasmine, it was one from from. from um, yeah, JTT Gallery from JTT. and she's been um, a former student. Uh, Laura Marinero from Marinero Gallery um, to go and to Elizabeth Dee. So it was, a, it was a good panel. Okay. Um, but one of the, they were asked what was the biggest development in art, like in the art market in the gallery world in the last two to three years. And the first answer was Instagram. Mm-hmm. And in part because um, you could bypass the gallery, you could get direct access to the artist's studio, you know, all the little movies people make of painting in their studio. And you got this immediate access uh, from the comfort of your living room. Yep. But then quickly, the conversation turned to the fact that they were bemoaning the lack of like R&D or the research and development level collector going in and buying from younger artists that weren't at that kind of established brand level. They were very clear that a lot of what collectors want is that relationship. Like they want to have dinner with the artists and the other dealers and that like networking and sharing artists between galleries was something that people were starting to do more, not out of altruism, mostly out of desperation, but that it was starting to work and that they were seeing by cooperating more, that they were seeing better results and returns. But this still really speaks to that kind of like the socialization or the social aspects mm-hmm. of art buying yeah. and developing those young kind of collectors. You well, know, that or, actually, or, you know, I was talking to a friend recently about that, the magazine Garage and the the woman who who owns that Dasha somebody or other the um like mega collector like she said she founded the whole um, sort of contemporary art center as like a space to hang out and have parties like so i mean that's something that blockchain isn't going to solve so this seems like a good place maybe to uh, segue Right, into something that resembles a closing. Yeah. Maybe this is a good spot for Kevin to tell us about your upcoming project at the Whitney. Yeah, so uh, Jen and I have a project um, through the uh, uh, through the um, Artport Commission uh, with the Whitney Museum uh, called Public Key, Private Key that's going to launch in May. Uh, and with this project, um, we've made a 16-millimeter uh, film that we're donating to the Whitney, but we're making a blockchain-based system of donor donation where you can be one of the named donors for the artwork and there'll be essentially a secondary market and uh tradable to become one of those donors uh for a work that's in the permanent collection so um just while we're on the podcast is there any way i can get an invitation to this sure um there'll be uh uh, some announcements through the um through the uh, website and through our uh, our own website um we'll get you you know get you on the vip list a vip list list to be on the vip list and in terms of getting involved with the sponsorship side of the project would that be something that would be possible for explain me uh to to participate as you know a patron as a patron yeah um we can uh we'll have to talk about that offline right (laughs) 
I also I want I want to know what the donor card is gonna look like because you know these works they're like brought it like courtesy of like right. it's gonna be like a hundred people. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I know. We're, 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 yeah, you'll you'll get a we'll have a collectible do, uh, donor card that we're working on that's uh, that, that's in process right now. And maybe also to plug one other thing. Um, you know, the McCoys and myself are both represented by Postmasters Gallery, which uh, at the time of the recording of this podcast are apparently launching their own Patreon uh, today. So I hope if you haven't heard of it or seen it by the time this podcast comes out, that you will check it out and see uh, how you can become a patron of Postmasters Gallery. That sounds great. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for coming out. Um, next uh, next time, I think we'll be talking about some news uh, whatever that news happens to be. And in the meantime, Kevin, it was great to have you uh, talk to us. Thanks yeah. for having me. It was great to talk with you guys. Thanks for coming, Kevin. And our thanks again to Superfine for sponsoring this episode of Explain Me. Find out more and get tickets at superfine.world. <laughs>